Welcome to What in the World. My name is Andre. I am being joined by my co-host Ryan, as always. And Ryan, we skipped last week because of the 4th of July uh, holiday weekend. But uh, there is a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of stuff that's happened over the last uh, two weeks. Uh, I think the first on my list really is what happened in Haiti recently, this uh, assassination of the president, Jovenel Moise. Uh about, I think, maybe six mercenaries, as the Haitian ambassador to the U.S. had termed it, uh, six mercenaries had basically gone in overnight to the residence and had basically just opened fire, uh, killed the president, severely wounded his wife. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, violence that's been happening in Port-au-Prince over the past few weeks. And this is the latest yet probably biggest uh, casualty of that violence the police had ended up killing about four of those suspects. Uh, they ended up arresting two of the other suspects. Haiti is not the most stable country in the world. Again, remember, it's a very poor country. A lot of political turmoil, as always. And certainly COVID-19 had severely weakened the country as well. But I mean, this assassination basically opens up this uh, big power vacuum. There will be a lot of political developments, a lot of political chaos ahead. And, uh, I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's a big deal. It's, it's a very big deal as any assassination of a sitting leader is always. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I think it's important for everyone to, to note that, uh, President Moise was not a, right, a, a democratic leader, right? He was elected in this election. And I believe around 2017 is the opposition in Haiti actually said that his term was supposedly expired, uh, in February of 2021. And so he's, was, you know, claimed to be ruling. Um, illegitimately, but I mean, it, it's important to note that after the um, the 2010 earthquake, which I mean, just completely destroyed Haiti. I mean, it even destroyed some of like the most advanced buildings, such as the president's residence. Um, there's been economic difficulties, gang violence, uh, political, uh, you know, violence as well, and so um, you know, this is just another kind of step in in the um, that just the the chaos that's been happening in Haiti. And I, I want to point out just like in, in recent months, there's been crazy political protests uh, in Haiti. There's, I mean, the, basically the, the capital of Port-au-Prince um, is kind of run by, outside of like the capital area, is run by gangs. Uh, and so you have this, you have a lot of violence. You have basically these local uh, gang leaders kind of having control over the city. And so there, there wasn't much stability in Haiti beforehand, but the death, as Andre, as you said, of any leader causes even more instability. And so... Um, the the interim prime minister Claude uh, Joseph will likely take over um, temporarily. Well, there are two people. There are two men who are actually trying to claim the prime ministership. Right. Uh, you said you said as you said uh, there is the acting prime minister Claude Joseph, uh, but there is also this other guy Ariel Henry who was a who was quote unquote appointed on July fifth, who said quote, Claude Joseph is not prime minister. He is part of my government. Uh, but uh, yeah, there are two guys who are claiming to be prime minister right now, at least as of this recording. Right, exactly. And so uh, I, I can't imagine that there's going to be any kind of clean and easy um, you know, solution to what's been happening in Haiti. Um, but the, the Haitian government has asked for UN and US support, asking for on the ground commitments, which uh, I, I can't imagine the United States actually agrees to. The UN, on the other hand, has a mission to Haiti. Um, and so that that is the more likely scenario. But they're looking for technical assistance and, you know, resuming elections and bringing together 
uh, their legislative branch because uh, you know President Moise kind of disbanded it. It was ruling by decree um, in a very basically authoritarian way. And so, um, I, I, yeah, Andre, as you said, you have these two uh, political figures vying for power right now in Haiti. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so we'll be monitoring what's going to be happening in Haiti over the next few days and weeks. It's certainly a very volatile situation. Uh, also going to be interesting to see, you know, what is the motive behind this assassination? Uh, who are these mercenaries perhaps hired by? And so on. Uh, now on to the other big story of the week. Uh, the U.S. forces have basically pulled out of Afghanistan. I mean, this is basically the full pullout is underway. Uh, the Taliban is gaining significant ground. I saw, I think, one report that said they had gained about 10% of Afghanistan in the last week or two. Uh, President Biden has certainly defended the decision to pull out by you know, claiming that we are not there to nation build. And uh, I, think, I think it's going to be a very interesting thing and a difficult thing for the president to defend. I mean, yes, you want to end one of America's longest wars. But, uh, I mean, did, did you solve the problem? Many people are saying you did not solve the problem because Afghanistan is about to go back to the Taliban, in my view. I mean, I, I think that's basically at this point, everyone's view is that and it's, you have a right view is that Afghanistan will fall to the Taliban. It's not about if, it's about when. And now you have um, countries in the region meeting with the Taliban to kind of come to some sort of agreement. Um, interestingly, reports um, on, on Thursday have, have shown that the Taliban have taken key areas on the Iran border. And Iran just, you know, remarkably is meeting with the Taliban around the same time. Um, and so, and you also have, you know, these Central Asian states trying to kind of stay out of it, even though other Western countries are trying to push Central Asian states to be more involved. This, of course, is concerning for Russia, which has a very close, you know, attempts to have a very close relationship with these uh, former Soviet republics. Um, but again, Andre, I mean, this, uh, this is a mess. I mean, you have these all this personnel, all the Afghan personnel who have helped the United States throughout, um, you know, the, the decades that we were in Afghanistan. And now it seems like there's a commitment from Congress, from the president of the United States to help out these individuals, to bring them to the United States if they so choose, which is something that you and I have talked about and have you know, been saying this is such an important aspect of it, as you know, other you know, military leaders and politicians have said. Um, and so that's nice to see that's occurring. But at the end of the day, there are going to be millions and millions of, of Afghan um, you know, men, women, and children who are going to suffer under the Taliban rule. It's, it's going to happen. I mean, I'll tell you something I saw on Twitter that I s sort of thought was sadly funny in a, in a, sad, in a very sad way. Uh, basically, 10 years ago, on July 18th, 2011, The Onion, our favorite satirical newspaper, put out an article saying, U.S. quietly slips out of Afghanistan in dead of night. This is exactly 10 years ago. The byline saying, Kabul, Afghanistan, in what officials said was the only way to move on from what has become a sad and unpleasant situation, all 100,000 U.S. military intelligence personnel crept out of Afghanistan in the dead of the night. Well, CNN was reporting uh, just today that the withdrawal is about 90% complete, uh, Bagram Air Base, which was our main air base in the country, uh, was basically left uh, last week. And then CNN said, quote, some Afghan soldiers said that they found out the Americans were leaving the same day they left. They left Bagram. 
Uh, one quote, one senior officer said he was notified last Thursday that his forces had less than 24 hours to secure the perimeters of the base. Did the onion get it right? Did did we seriously just like did at least some of our troops? Did they seriously just leave the country in the dead of the night? I mean, even if you know they you know did leave in the dead of the night and not telling the 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 Afghan commander is just or giving them very short notice. I mean, that's that's just I I can't even begin to comprehend how ridiculous that is. I mean, remember Ambassador Ambassador Newman said that uh, what we've done is we've trained them to a fifth grade level, and then uh, we're expecting them to do the exams of a twelfth grader. And I mean, you're seeing this with the Taliban, I mean, slowly taking over the country. And I mean, you don't have any reason to really trust the Taliban, really. So, I mean, I mean, the president got a bit annoyed when he was asked about Afghanistan, I think the day before the 4th of July, and he sort of just evaded the questions. But I mean, I mean, listen, like it's, it's not going to be a good situation. Yeah, we're out of there, but I mean, we're leaving Afghan to basically destroy itself to an extent with the civil wars and the Taliban coming in. And then at the end of the day, have we solved have we solved anything in the in the 20 years we've been there what what if it becomes a new terrorist safe haven uh there's also uh some articles recently that i saw about china and its plans for afghanistan uh china certainly might be the third superpower the latest superpower to ruin itself with afghanistan because afghanistan is known as the graveyard of the empires uh the british had a tough time the Russians, the Soviets had a really tough time in the 1980s. And then the U.S., obviously, the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, people may not think about it, but China and Afghanistan share a border. And so, um, you know, they don't want chaos in Afghanistan. Of course, they want it to go in their favor. And so, it, you know, I, I can't imagine that China actually puts, you know, troops on the ground in Afghanistan. But if they are working for a political solution, um, that'll, that, you know, I guess contravenes the the you know, the efforts of the United States, that's a win for China. Uh, and so don't, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Russia and, and China, or even, you know, China and Pakistan kind of trying to work to some sort of agreement in Afghanistan. So, I mean, it's, it's look, again, the U.S. is leaving, we're washing our hands of it. Um, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons of doing this. But Andre, as you and I have laid out, there are many, many cons um, in, in doing it in this fashion. Like, I mean, again, this, this is, you know, every president may, can make policy decisions, but and you know you can criticize those, but it's really the ways in which those are effectuated in practice that are subject to the most robust criticism. And this, I mean, I will say, should be criticized because of it's just so mismanaged. And in, in my opinion, because look, look, everyone wants to leave Afghanistan. Leaving Afghanistan should be the end goal of any president who wants to stay in the country forever. You don't. But this is, I mean, out of all the pullouts you could conceive of, this is a very hasty pullout. Like, I mean, I mean, yeah, Trump started it, Biden sort of implementing it. But I mean, it's it's very hastily put together. I mean, we had, again, General McKenzie, who's a CENTCOM commander for the region, uh, talk about this a bit. I mean, the Taliban are not to be trusted. The Taliban have given us no reason to be trusted. The general himself said that in November of 2020. The general who manages the troops in Afghanistan and the broader Middle East said the Taliban are not to be trusted. Yet, 
we're sort of maybe we're not trusting the Taliban, but we're looking the other way. And I think I think the White House and maybe Congress did announce that they will uh, create pathways to the U.S. for those translators. God willing, that happens very quickly, very fast, because, I mean, John Oliver did a piece about this a few years ago. I mean, some of these translators are already seeing their family members being killed and kidnapped by the Taliban and other militants. So Afghanistan, a bloody mess. All right. Well, let's uh, let's stay in the region and talk about uh, Iraq and Syria. U.S. personnel are are still in these countries. Um, U.S. diplomats and troops are are coming under drone and rocket attacks. You know, we we saw that the Biden administration did respond to Iranian proxies attacking U.S. personnel and U.S. positions um, with with strikes of their own. Um, and that was, of course, condemned by certain elements within you know the U.S. Congress. Um, but again, right, this is this is still happening. This this kind of proxy fight between the U.S. and Iran, even amidst the the attempt by the United States to come to some sort of new JCPOA, a a new Iran deal, um, while, you know, the Iranians seem to have no interest in a new new deal. Um, As Andre, as you and I have talked about, that's, it's got to happen for them economically, um, that they, you know, they need some relief. And so I, I, I don't know what sort of bargaining power they have when their, their proxies are continuing to attack U.S. Uh, personnel, and we had two service me- uh, members injured in a base in Western Iraq. Um, you know, they you know didn't sustain any s- serious injuries, but still injuries nonetheless. And so the Biden administration is responding to these attacks. Um, but again, even though we're withdrawing our the the main you know forces from from the Middle East, um, our you part personnel, the people on the ground are still subject to attacks, whether they're you know elements within the country or external elements. Um, this is this is an issue, and it's never going to to really end. Um, and so that's something that policymakers have to keep in their minds because just because you're withdrawing all your troops doesn't mean that you know you can still you know just wash your hands of what's happening in the country. We always have personnel around the world. I mean, so that has to be, of course, another consideration, right? I mean, look at Afghanistan. The United States is not withdrawing every single American from that country. We still have diplomats there. We still have USAID workers. There's still, you know, all these different diplomats um, and, you know, NGO workers who are American. We even have troops there to ensure security. And so we're not fully leaving. It, it never fully ends. We're not just going to, you know, completely turn away from the Middle East as we heat up things with China. Yeah. And also remember, Iran has a new president, uh, a very hard line, very, very conservative president now, Abraham Raisi, uh, who is basically very much in line with the Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, the previous guy, Rouhani, was widely seen as a moderate. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, and I mean, that's certainly going to affect how Iran postures itself in the region as well. So that's also something to keep in mind. Uh, Andre, I'm just going to go back really quickly. I just got a news update uh, from the New York Times. It's uh, apparently uh, an American citizen is among the six people detained in the assassination of uh, Haiti's president. Um, which again is interesting because you know the Haitian government has said that it's foreigners that have been involved in this attack. Again, there's there's nothing that has been, um, you know, no kind of secondary um, confirmation of of this information, but this is coming right from the the Haitian government. Uh, that is quite interesting to me. You know, I don't, I don't know if you remember Andre, but I believe it was in the, an attempt um, to overthrow the Venezuelan government by these you know kind of former U.S. Um, you know, special operations forces, and that you know failed miserably. I, I don't know, right? If this um, has 
is even there's any you know nugget of truth to this, but it's wait, tell me more about this Venezuelan thing. Well, so I, I believe that you know when we had um, there was this kind of mishmash of mercenaries. Um, I, I might have been a couple of years ago to overturn to overturn Maduro. Yeah, it was you know in the dead of night. It was kind of like a Bay of Pigs round two, um, and it failed miserably. They were arrested. It also could have been like a a false flag thing by Maduro to show that he's still strong, but. Um, yeah, I can't remember the actual date of when it happened, but this was a while ago. It, it didn't materialize anything. The American, or it might have been one or two Americans involved, no connection to the U.S. government. I believe they may still be um, in imprisoned. Um, but yeah, so that just kind of, again, kind of raises in my mind when you have foreign mercenaries or at least allegedly involved in these situations, it always kind of, you know, gives me a sense of uneasiness just because I'm not, I'm not so quick to believe it. Uh, even though it's being reported by the Haitian government. Yeah, especially when you consider the sources of that reporting as well. I mean, the Haitian government is not necessarily the most trustworthy government on the planet. So, yeah. Uh, also, another in other news, uh, COVID is sort of resurging in Tokyo. Uh, we're seeing the Tokyo Olympics that's going to happen in what, Ryan? Two weeks? Two weeks. And uh, there's basically been a COVID spike in Tokyo. and there is not going to be any spectators for the Olympics because COVID is still here. The Delta variant is spreading throughout the United States. So for God's sakes, people, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Like 99.8% of those who are getting COVID right now are unvaccinated. Get vaccinated, people. People are like, people are trying to like literally, that's the takeaway. People are trying to come into the US to get vaccinated. Like that's how bad it is. But I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, Ryan, I mean, COVID diplomacy, COVID vaccine diplomacy is still very much a thing, right? Like we are working, we have all these different deals. I think we're sending 500 million doses. Uh, we, I think with the G8 or G7 now, uh, we have what, a billion doses? I mean, yeah, it's, it's some crazy amount that we're going to hopefully attempt to vaccinate uh, in the coming months. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's very unfortunate. And this, again, this doesn't have, you know, just health implications. It has political ones as well. And so you see this in India, you see this in Brazil. I mean, all these countries that are mishandling COVID are seeing fierce criticism by the people and by opposition leaders. And so I think uh, uh, India's Modi is just the, the latest of these uh, subjected to this criticism. He's actually kind of fired many members of his cabinet and this kind of reshuffle uh, given the the alleged mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic, and so uh, again, of course, there's these you know terrible the the, the tragic impacts on human health. Um, but again, you know, it always impacts uh, politics. Anytime you know you have domestic instability, it it goes to the top. Yeah. Another bit of news I just saw uh, in the Philippines. Uh, we all know President Rodrigo Duterte, uh, strongman leader very very vicious in his approach to the uh to the drug wars very sort of upfront about what he thinks about things uh president trump i think once it uh, expressed admiration for the guy uh but sort of like a very tough guy brutal in many ways he is not uh, allowed legally to run for a second term so he's strongly thinking about running for vice president instead of president he can run for vice president because he says he has quote unfinished business 
Um, Duterte is a, just a horrid individual. <laughs> um, all right, let's let's move on yeah. to a couple more things before we wrap today. Uh, one of which is Kim Jong Un, North Korea's dictator, the 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 dear leader. Yo, I need to get on this weight loss plan, man. I I don't know if he's using Jenny Craig or <laughs> Weight Watchers, something else. Right. As as we can, you know, kind of poke fun of at it. You know, every intelligence agency in the world is trying to analyze this weight loss because it might indicate, um, you know, the the economic and food situation in North Korea, maybe his, you know, Kim Jong Un's personal health, or maybe he's actually getting on this a a, a weight loss plan. Uh, nonetheless, he uh, the South Korea spy agency actually believe. Uh, believes he's lost as much as 44 pounds between 22 and 44 pounds. Well, that's, that's great for him. Well, I mean, it depends on the reasoning. Right? If, it's, if it's right, if it's intentional, that's great. But if it's not, it might be you know indicative of a of a grave health concern. And so, and that of course, you know, there's no known successor to Kim Jong Un. And so, if you know, for, if something happens to him, you know, that that country could kind of be plunged into uncertainty. Also. Also remember, it's it's not a good look to have a obese, plump leader when your entire country is starving and in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, like, it's it's just not a good look to have a plump person leading you when your countrymen are starving every single day. Like, I don't know about y'all, but maybe it's a purposeful weight loss thing that is PR people said, hey going to help you out personally with your health but also these guys see you they see that you're eating all this great food obviously and they're not getting any of it i mean no so sumi terry who we actually had on the podcast who's a north korea expert uh was quoted saying that succession is very unclear if something were to happen to kim jong-un as you know as i was talking about you know we know he's unhealthy so we so we need to care is what she said um, again, as you know, as you know, I mentioned, Andre. All these analysts are kind of trying to figure out whether or not, right, if if the weight loss is because he's on some new, you know, diet, or that he's actually, you know, unwell because the Kim family uh, has heart-related issues. Um, and so while while he's in his late 30s, he's you know a chain smoker, he's a heavy drinker, he also has the stress of running a a brutal uh, dictatorship. Uh, and so I think we should kind of all pay attention to what's happening in North Korea. Um, but even amidst kind of what's going on here, um, the North Korean government has indicated zero interest in resuming any sort of talks with the United States. And so um, they certainly won't be getting any medical help from the U.S. anytime soon. If it is an intentional weight loss, though, I, I do. I am curious about what he's doing, because 44 pounds, that's some great results. I sort of want to get fit again after this pandemic thing and the weight I've gained from the pandemic. So... Hopefully, we can our intelligence services can help with that. Yeah, well, a, a little insight for all of you listening. Andre actually lives in San Diego, so he has no excuse to look the way he looks. I look fantastic. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, I always see you through a, through a, a computer screen. So you, you I'm the chest up. Nothing <laughs> below. Right, yeah. exactly. All right, let's, let's go to one more um, story before we wrap up today. Um, so, uh, fighter jets were actually scrambled at a NATO base in Lithuania, uh, where Spain's prime minister was meeting, um, with, with, you know, the, the Lithuanian, um, prime minister or actually Lithuanian president was actually there and said, um, and so, uh, interestingly, um, it was Russian jets, which I guess are not very surprising that they were scrambled. Um, so, you know, we have the Baltic countries, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania on, on, you know, the, the Russia's border. These are very crucial states for NATO in particular. I um, mean, there's always a, a kind of a an undertone of 
of, you know, will Russia invade one of the Baltic states? Even though it's a NATO member, Russia, there's a lot of Russian speakers in these countries. Russia has a lot of influence or is attempting uh, to exert its power over these countries. And so by having, you know, Sukhoi jets fly over uh, a kind of a, a NATO base where there's two, um, you know, NATO members meeting, uh, that is just a slap in the face to NATO and Lithuania in particular. Yeah. I mean, it's the same sort of excuse they use with the Crimea, right? Like, oh, all these Russian speakers are here. Uh, let's rig an election and they all want to join us because they're all quote unquote Russian. But Ryan, what does it actually mean to be Russian these days? Like, I mean, with the Soviets, you had the Soviet Union controlled all this these massive swaths of land, right? Like many modern day countries used to be part of this one entity, the Soviet Union. But now, what does it actually mean to be Russian is what I'm curious about. And how does that sort of play into, you know, how they took Crimea and uh, what they might be trying to do with this uh, country right now? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And it depends on who you ask, because the Russian government will say that anyone ethnically Russian no matter where you live, is Russian, and that Russia has the responsibility to protect them. That is what, that's the Crimea situation, that's the Eastern Ukraine situation. It's also been the situation in their support of Russian-speaking and ethnic Russians in any, you know, country in the former Soviet space, including the Baltic countries, uh, including even, you know, the the Central Asian countries. Um, And so, if you're looking to the Russian government, they will say, well, yeah, you're, you're ethnically Russian, you speak Russian, you're Russian, we can we should protect you. Russia is your home. Um, but you know, when you ask any of the, the former Soviet republics, many of which who are not so friendly to Russia anymore, they will say that you know, these are, it's, you know, they have their own sovereignty. Despite them being ethnically Russian, they have their own citizenships and nationalities and their new countries of, of residence or even origin for many of them who are, I mean, the generation that lived through the Soviet Union is aging, that were actually born in the Soviet Union is aging, despite it you know, collapsing in, in 91. There's a whole new generation of, of you know, you know, born of, of those born in these countries with only the nationalists, only the nationalities of these new, um, you know, separated post-Soviet countries. Um, and so that is that's a very important consideration when you're looking at Russia's sphere of influence. And so, um, you know, interestingly, in the countries that have significant Russian populations like the Baltics, like Belarus, like Ukraine. Um, and even maybe, I mean, Kazakhstan is also another one, um, Moldova, um, and then, you know, you know, the Caucasus as well. Um, these, these Russian nationals are incredibly nationalistic and seek to kind of promote pro-Russian leaders. And that puts a strain on the domestic politics in all these countries as well. For sure. If you want to learn more about Russia and its recent developments, listen to an intro episode with Fiona Hill, uh, the famed Russian expert, and so on. Uh, Ryan, we also just concluded a very important mini-series this, uh, today with the, well, on Thursday with the release of an episode with Yossi Klein-Halevi. Yossi is an Israeli author and journalist who talks a bit about Zionism, about the creation of the State of Israel, and the Jewish diaspora before 1948, uh, provides his perspectives on how he views this from the Israeli side of things. And this is the last episode in a broader miniseries on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, for the Palestinian perspective and side, we had Dr. Rashid Halidi, a uh, Columbia University historian, a former, I guess, 
advisor to the PLO when they were negotiating in the early 90s at the Madrid conference. So that's a great sort of episode on Palestinian nationalism. You'll see again on Zionism and sort of the Israeli side of things. Uh, Dr. Just Genem on the Gaza humanitarian crisis. Dr. Victor Lieberman giving us an overview of the entire Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then two other episodes with foreign outsiders, uh, former Egyptian foreign minister Nabil Fami on the e Egypt's role in the conflict, and then former Clinton aide and negotiator during the Camp David peace process, Bruce Rydell, who talks about the U.S. involvement in the whole conflict. That's about six episodes, many different perspectives, many different angles and aspects of this very multifaceted, again, complicated issue. So please check that out. Uh, we posted the preview and the information for those episodes on our social media channels. And uh, you can sort of find them by date. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a kind of thrown together haphazardly, you know, as this, uh, the conflict escalated. And so we're very uh, fortunate to have a great slew of guests who have provided wonderful perspectives and analyses. Um, and don't forget, on, on this coming Monday, we have a fantastic episode with Anya Manuel, former diplomat, author, um, advisor. She is the co-founder of strategic advisory firm Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel. I mean, so that's a fantastic episode. We talk about uh, India and China and, of course, the U.S.'s uh, relationship with these two countries. Um, so I, I, I hope you all listen to that as well. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, we'll see you folks on Monday and then next Friday for Watching the World. Uh, be well. See you next week. <laughs>